Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, June 23rd. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. A major setback for Senate Democrats as Republicans vote to stop a critical effort to protect voting rights from new restrictions in GOP-led states. President Biden unveiling a major new push to combat rising crime in the United States as the nation registers increasing incidents of violence. And experts increasingly worried about the Delta variant and its spread in states that are falling behind in vaccinations. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. The battle for voting rights in this country reaching a critical point. Senate Republicans vowed voting to strike down the Democrats' sweeping election reform bill. Democrats presenting a unified front, all 50 Democratic senators voting for the bill. However, they were met by a no vote from every single GOP senator, ending the chance for a debate. The clerk will call the roll. Overnight, Vice President Kamala Harris presiding over the sweeping voting rights bill. The legislation would have made Election Day a federal holiday, required 15 days of early voting and limited partisan gerrymandering. All 50 Democrats supporting the bill, including West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who met with President Biden privately before the vote. We had a nice conversation. The president's, president's message are very, very confidential. However, Republicans crushed the effort at the first attempt, wielding the Senate's filibuster rules, which require a 60-vote majority to advance the bill. It is a solution in search of a problem. This was a vote to proceed to the debate. It wasn't even a, a debate or, or a vote on the, the bill itself. Democrats argue it's needed to maintain democracy after a wave of new restrictive voting laws were passed in 15 Republican-led states. Once again, the Senate Republican minority has launched a partisan blockade of a pressing issue here in the United States Senate, an issue no less fundamental than the right to vote. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris saying the fight is not over. The bottom line is that the president and I are very clear. We support S-1. We support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And the fight is not over. The White House is framing it as a symbolic victory, not a legislative one. And he will continue to use the bully pulpit, but also every lever in government to continue to advocate for moving forward. Press Secretary Jen Psaki suggesting the loss could spur Democrats to rethink the filibuster even though Senator Joe Manchin has made his opposition clear. I'm not going to destroy my government, no. Senator Kristen Sinema reiterating hers today, writing in the Washington Post that it's no secret I oppose eliminating the Senate's 60-vote threshold, warning, if we eliminate it, we will lose much more than we gain. And President Joe Biden assigned Vice President Harris to lead the charge on voting rights. But despite calls and meetings with advocates, she hasn't taken concrete steps on the matter. A violent crime surge nationwide has triggered major concerns inside the White House. Today, President Biden will be laying out his plan to address it as the administration braces for what could be a turbulent summer. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. 
Andrea, despite the concern, the White House tells me that President Biden is confident on his plan to tackle violence in cities across the country. That's why his strategy includes meetings not only with law enforcement, but also with community leaders. President Joe Biden will announce a plan today outlining a strategy to curb the dangerous surge in violent crimes in many American cities. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the administration's focus will be tackling gun violence in the upcoming summer months. There are major cities across the country where gun violence is absolutely the driver, where it is absolutely increasing. And that will be a central part of what he'll talk about when he delivers his remarks. Biden's address will come after a private meeting with Attorney General Mary Garland, local officials, law enforcement and community leaders, all looking to fix the problem as homicide rates in cities like New York, Los Angeles and Chicago have all increased from the same point last year and the year before, though violent crime is down nationwide from where it was five and ten years ago. Now officials say the president plans to sign executive actions aimed at reducing gun crimes. This comes after he signed six gun control-related executive actions in April. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic. Let me say it again. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic, and it's an international embarrassment. With limited power to impose sweeping gun control reform, officials say Biden is planning to urge Congress to take action, a call the president has repeated to his Capitol Hill colleagues time and time again since taking office. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. And I'll do everything in my power to protect the American people from this epidemic of gun violence. But it's time for Congress to act as well. But despite the spike in crime, passing any bills through a gridlock Senate will be difficult. And Republican leaders are using rising crime as a talking point in their quest to take back control of the House and Senate in 2022. Biden also faces pressure from some Democrats calling for major police reform. Change the White House says can happen while also addressing the rise in violence across the United States. Police reform is long outdated, but it's also important to take steps to uh, to put in place gun safety measures, to take any, use any lever he can uh, as president to do exactly that and to ensure there is uh, appropriate funding and resources needed to ensure there's community policing in communities across the country. Today, President Biden will also announce that he's directing his administration to revoke the licenses of gun sellers who neglect to run required background checks or are caught willfully selling a weapon to a person who is not permitted to have one. Live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin Pitti, for that report. And now let's go to Jeffrey Butts. He's a professor and director of the Research and Evaluation Center at John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. Thanks so much for being with us today, Jeff Jeffrey. Welcome to U News. Hi, Andrea. Good to be with you. What is the data telling you about the nationwide rise in crime at this time? Well, we have to be careful about our terms. There's no rise in crime. There's not even a uniform rise in violence. There's what we're seeing is a rise in gun violence and illegal use of guns. And that the, the other challenge is when you ask the question, what are the data show? Um, we're terrible in this country at using data to inform crime policy. And one of the reasons is 
the data take a long time to come out. We won't have good data about 2020 for another six months. And it's really hard to piece together an explanation when your data come out so long after the end of a year. Let's talk specifically about New York City. Shootings roughly doubled every quarter in 2020, starting with 167 shootings in the first quarter of the year, then doubling to 361, then 634. Talk to us about these numbers and how they compare to pre-pandemic levels. Yes. So we definitely saw the same increase that other areas of the country have seen here in New York with a jump in shootings. Um, and the police department here are very good at releasing their data. So one, one advantage we have at the city level is more contemporary data. When you look at the shootings in this year and the past few quarters and compare them to the same quarter or prior years, we see some evidence that is getting better. So you can't just say, um, how's this quarter compared to the next quarter? Because we know that shootings and violence tend to cycle on a calendar basis. So they go up in the spring and summer and come down in the winter. Um, but if you compare year to year, last year we saw a 150% increase in the first quarter of 2020 compared to 2019. This year in the first quarter, we saw a 50% increase over 2020. So the, the disparity is still there, the increase is there, but we're hoping that this change in the numbers means that the, the surge is starting to die out. But we do not know yet, and it's very concerning. In your estimation, what is behind this increase in gun violence in particular? Yes, well, one clue is to recognize that the pandemic affected the whole world. But with the pandemic mixing in with all of our other social and economic challenges here in the country, I think that's why we're seeing shooting. Basically, we have a, hundreds of millions of easily obtained weapons in circulation in this country. It's easy for anyone to find a gun to use, especially handguns. We also have longstanding economic inequities and weak supports for low-income families and families and communities of color. So anytime there's a cultural or economic problem, those communities feel it first and feel it worse. Um, and finally, we have the incidence of police violence. Now that almost everyone has a phone with a good camera in it, we are seeing and witnessing police violence like the George Floyd incident, which is helping to erode the legitimacy of law enforcement, which adds to the problem. A lot of attention has gone to gun violence and other crimes in major cities, like I mentioned, in New York, also Chicago. But what is happening in rural parts of the country? Yeah, that's a very good question. When you look, we tend to say cities. We always talk about gun violence in cities because cities are the ones that are able to generate the very fast numbers that come out every month. But you have to look at rural areas. And sometimes when you do that, you find rates of gun violence, so per capita rates that are as bad as some of our largest cities. But because of the, the national, uh, the poor attempt to collect data at the national level, we often don't know about rural areas until well into the next year. And so you have to look back in time to compare urban and rural. And that's a big challenge. Now, do you think the president's plan can have any real impact in curbing violent crime and also gun violence? I hope so. Every provision in the plan is solid, and it's what I think any sensible person would do. The trick is actually implementing it and backing it up with resources. 
the idea of using community-based violence prevention makes a lot of sense, but you can't just say those words and find a program that claims to do it and then give them money. You have to have well-structured, well-managed programs based on solid frameworks, and that's not simple. But we are making progress in this country. Programs like Cure Violence, for example, or Advanced Peace are both programs that are pretty well established and people are working to make them better and stronger. I think that's where the hope lies. Well, thanks so much for all this insight. Jeffrey Butts of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And in other news out of Washington, the Biden administration says it's supporting three bills aimed at making sure everyone has equal opportunities. In a statement Tuesday, the White House said ending discrimination is, quote, a priority for the administration. That's why the Biden administration says it supports the Protection of Older Workers Against Discrimination Act. It's also backing the Equal Access to Contraception for Veterans Act, noting it's a crucial element of preventive health care. The administration is also lending its support to the LGBTQ Business Equal Credit Enforcement and Investment Act. And the Biden administration is supporting ending the racial disparity of sentencing for cocaine offenders. In 1986, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act mandated sentencing guidelines, including a minimum of five years in federal prison with no parole for possession of five grams of crack cocaine. Critics have argued there should not be stricter sentencing for crack than powdered cocaine, since it's the same substance. The law has led to the incarceration of thousands of people of color color over the past decades. Cases of COVID-19 attributed to the Delta variant doubling nationwide, now accounting for 20% of all infections. Health officials emphasizing we have the tools to stop a potential surge in the fall as the Biden administration tours the country promoting vaccinations. Lorraine Gossides has the latest on the pandemic here in the U.S. 12 more days to close the gap and the Biden administration is hard at work. The first lady visiting Tennessee and Mississippi on Tuesday, where only 51% and 45.6% of adults have gotten at least one shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. Meanwhile, the Delta variant now accounting for about 20% of all cases here in the U.S. The numbers doubling every two weeks. Good news. Our vaccines are effective against the Delta variant. We have the tools, so let's use them and crush the outbreak. The director of the CDC saying at this point in the pandemic, almost nobody should be dying of coronavirus. In Manatee County, Florida, two people are dead and four were hospitalized after a COVID-19 outbreak at a government office building. One person who worked in the same office and was vaccinated did not catch the virus. Nearly 300 people are still dying of COVID-19 each day in the U.S. A CNN analysis of CDC data shows that people who died of COVID-19 in May were younger and more disproportionately black than those who had died of COVID-19 throughout the pandemic. Meanwhile, the National Institutes of Health estimating nearly 17 million people, five times the number reported, had COVID-19 by the end of July of 2020, but never noticed symptoms and were never diagnosed with it. The NIH team analyzing blood samples for more than 8,000 volunteers who said they were never diagnosed with COVID-19 and finding close to 5% of them had antibodies to coronavirus.
And the WHO is reporting that the world saw the lowest number of COVID-19 cases last week. That number, the lowest since February, to be specific right now, of the global population, about 10% of people are fully vaccinated against the coronavirus. Andrea, back to you. Vice President Kamala Harris is heading to the U.S.-Mexico border this week amid an unrelenting chorus of criticism from Republicans over her failure to visit there. Harris, who was tasked by President Joe Biden to lead diplomatic efforts to stem the flow of migrants arriving on the southern border, will make a stop in El Paso, Texas on Friday. According to sources familiar with this trip, she is expected to be accompanied by Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And in the meantime, the Biden administration is expanding the pool of migrants eligible to be processed into the United States. Starting today, migrants who had their cases terminated or were removed for not being present at their immigration hearings will get a second chance at life in the U.S. In February, the administration began the gradual entry of migrants who fell under the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, the Trump-era policy that went into effect in January 2019. Previous protocols allowed migrants to enter the country and stay as they went through their immigration hearings in the U.S. More than 70,000 people were affected by the program and many waited months in squalid and dangerous conditions. And while the Biden administration is extending its hand to immigrants, it's also stepping up border surveillance. The Border Patrol announcing it will use speedboats equipped with state-of-the-art technology to confront human smugglers in Southern California. Jorge Hernandez explains. After proving their effectiveness in the waters of the Rio Grande in Texas, fast twin engine U.S. Border Patrol boats will also be used in the frigid waters of the Pacific Ocean to contain the growing number of migrants trying to cross by sea from Mexico to the United States in a wide variety of boats. Historically, they were using pangas. Now we have seen that they're trying to use recreational boats. The waters of the Pacific Ocean is the last option for hundreds of migrants willing to pay whatever it takes to cross into the United States without the necessary documentation. It is estimated that they are charged from twelve to $20,000, a juicy business for smugglers of undocumented migrants. Since fiscal year 2020, we have seen a 93% increase, and this year we have already made 1,260 arrests. With two powerful outboard motors, radar and infrared sensors to navigate at night, these boats are tasked with stopping the flow of migrants risking their lives to reach the coast of California. In fiscal year 2020, there have already been five deaths, unfortunately. Reported by Jaime Garcia in San Diego, California, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. Your news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. Your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News.
We're getting a better sense of the Taliban's recent advances in Afghanistan as the U.S. continues its military withdrawal. The U.N.'s special envoy on Afghanistan says since May, militants have gained control of 50 of the country's 370 districts. The Taliban's intensifying campaign comes just months ahead of the U.S. deadline to end America's longest war, removing U.S. troops by a deadline imposed by the Biden administration, and that is September 11th. 2021. And in news out of Latin America, Human Rights Watch is urging the United Nations and member countries to pressure Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega to stop alleged human rights abuses, including a crackdown on opposition figures ahead of the November presidential election in that country. In a 38-page report, the organization said the high-profile arrests and other serious human rights violations against critics appear to be part of a broader strategy to eliminate political competition, stifle dissent, and pave the way for a fourth straight Ortega term. Meanwhile, in Peru, military veterans and supporters of Peru's conservative candidate Keiko Fujimori protested against socialist candidate Pedro Castillo in Lima on Tuesday. Castillo, a socialist and son of peasant farmers, is on the cusp of winning Peru's presidential election. His narrow victory has yet to be officially confirmed by electoral authorities. And now to Colombia, where the discovery of a young man's head in a plastic bag has shocked the nation. The victim's relatives denied that Santiago Ochoa was linked to drug trafficking, but his death is just the latest sign of unrest in that country. Ana de Mendoza brings us that story. His name was Jaime Fandino, and he was 32 years old. He died in the middle of clashes between police and protesters in the south of Bogotá. Jaime was hit in the chest by a blunt object, most likely at a very close range. The unrest in Colombia, which began on April 28th with a national strike, has not stopped. In the capital, Bogotá, there were more than 12 hours of chaos due to the confrontations. In Manizales, there were also clashes. And in the valley, terror continues. After the mysterious killing of 22-year-old Santiago Ochoa, who was found decapitated, his head was found inside a bag. His family says that the young man was not part of the protests. They say that my nephew belonged to the front line, and it is totally false. National and local authorities are investigating Ochoa's death. To be able to quickly solve this terrible crime and give peace of mind and a message of solidarity to his family by telling them the truth of what happened. On Twitter, Colombian President Ivan Duque repudiated the violent killing. The Colombian government is offering a reward for information. In the meantime, international media is also asking about the people who have gone missing during the protest. Reported by Yacid Vaquero in Bogotá, Ana de Mendoza, U News. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.